Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are talking about the Gospels. This is Gospels part 133. Last week we saw where Jesus' mob of people who had arrested him first took him to the former high priest, bought out high priest Annas to his private residence to question him concerning his teaching, his disciples, and Jesus is like, what was the point of this? Like, you could have just asked the witnesses like you're supposed to do in, like, traditional, correct judicial system that would have been present in Israel. Yeah. And then Annas sends him from his private residence to his son-in-law's, the actual current bought-out high priest Caiaphas's uh, residence. Yeah. And then... There, Jesus gets asked more directly about his messiahship in terms of, are you the Christ, uh, the Son of the Blessed, the Son of God? And Jesus seemingly confirms it and kind of adds to it, too, by the Son of Man imagery in Daniel and the indicating or affirming his authority and power with God by saying that he is at the right hand of power and coming down on or will be coming down on the clouds and they they just lost their marbles at that statement and <laughs> had everything that they thought that they needed to um, condemn him to death and ironically they still really didn't have any power to do so because they were under wrapped around the finger of Rome and that right. they're now the stories we're going to have to see how they're going to get Rome to do their dirty work so to speak yeah i think last week we we tried to prioritize how this whole scenario is so anti what jewish capital cases or judicial like situations would have looked like they were cutting so many corners they were doing so many things backwards all for the name of getting what they wanted yep and to further their own power or promoting their empire instead of the kingdom of shalom that God wants. Right. Yeah. It's it's amazing. I mean, those aren't things that people like you and I just know off the top of our heads reading through the text. Huh, look at everything they've done wrong. But when you see what scholars write about it and and claim everything would look like normally and you see everything that's out of whack it's just shocking and it it really really emphasizes the the depravity of the guys who are going after him so yeah it's good shock and all and shockingly awful yeah that's right that's right So let's see, where are we in the text? Okay, we're still in the synoptics. Let's see, we got Matthew chapter 26, verses 67 and 68, Mark 14, verse 65, and Luke chapter 22, verses 63 to 65. I'm going to go ahead and read from Luke, and just a little reminder, 
This is me trying to sequence all of these things together, and it's a lot harder than it looks. And right now, we've got Luke a little bit out of order as compared to how you might read it if you were just reading through. But I'm going to go ahead and read from Luke because he's got some good stuff in here. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. I thought that was awesome. So, so this, uh, well, we said it was kind of a toothless lion. They didn't actually have the power to, to put him to death. And yet, okay, this toothless lion does still have some claws, some weapons, and uh, they're beating on Jesus. And, you know, I think, for the correct imagery, beating someone sounds pretty intense, pretty harsh, pretty uh, shocking. Clenched fist. Yeah, yeah, all of that. I think that's the proper image at this point. So while they're beating on him, they're mocking him. He had just claimed, and, and I think many of the people that were there, that they understood this. He had just claimed to... And it depends on how you want to say it, either to be God or to be equal with God, or, I mean, very explicitly claim to be this Messiah, all of that. So while they're beating him, they blindfold him and they taunt him. Which one of us just struck you? Prophesy, right? And we actually, I think through history, we're kind of familiar with this. Now, it's known by various names, one that I think our common audience might be familiar with is blind man's bluff. That was the name of this kind of behavior. Another one that I wasn't familiar with, I wanted to throw in here because it's just such a weird name. It's called stroke the baby. What is that? How did whoever Hmm. came up with that name? Very weird. But the point is just to say it's known by many different names. So these guys didn't make it up. They weren't this, this kind of evil has been around forever. So there you go. Now, as far as we know, according to the text, Jesus never said anything during all of this. However, we also do know (laughs) that he did indeed know exactly who had just struck him, who was doing what to him. He knew all of this. At least I think he did. God did. Spirit did. Whatever. It's known. And, And it just highlights the point for me. Okay, these guys, they think they're getting away with something. They think they're being smarty pants. But there's just that, that, that reminder that we so often need. There is nothing that is hidden from God. Nothing. And if we lived as if we actually believed that, the world would be such a better place. Mm. It is true. It's just that, and, and it, it comes down to this, Samuel. Why would people do things knowing that it's not hidden from God? Because they really don't believe it. Mm. Why do people think that they're a Christian but do so many contrary things? Because they really don't believe it. They would say it, they believe that they believe it, but they really don't believe it. And so it's a, it's just it's a good reminder. Uh, I won't harp on that too much, though. Let's get back to the story. Luke adds a very interesting ending. They said many other things against him, blaspheming him. 
I just think that's such classic authorship because here he was being accused of blasphemy by a bunch of blasphemers at that very moment plying their trade, right? And and I, I don't know. To be fair, maybe it's only because they they were ignorant. They didn't understand he really was this Messiah. He really was God. I don't know. But it's just Luke did a really good job of of uh, highlighting the irony there. So mm-hmm. anything there, Samuel? Yeah, I just can't. The way that this text reads in Luke, I just can't believe how childish these things that these people who were holding Jesus are doing to him. Yeah. It just sounds like like playground stuff that bullies would do. And I mean, in some ways it's like less than human. Yeah, it is. Especially within like a culture with like being Jewish where it is, it's supposed to be taught and made very abundantly aware that the dignity and like inherent value of the human being, no matter who they are or what yeah. they've done, should be prioritized in how you treat them, especially in a public place that showcases how far removed these people who are orchestrating all of these events truly are from like what it means to be truly a part of Israel or to be truly Jewish or to be human. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it almost it made me think of like I think we're in this podcast we're trying to showcase that of course Jesus is doing all of these things in death and resurrection because it's going to atone for sin in a spiritual sense, but like all of these events also are kind of displaying the next event of exile for the chosen people in terms of Jesus offers the people the kingdom, asks them to repent. They don't. And then it's almost as if these people who are orchestrating these events are like God's mechanism of exile. In the same way in the Old Testament, you had these pagan nations like the Assyrians, the Babylonians who came in, who were very far removed from the things of God and, and did God's bidding in terms of removing them from the land yeah. because of their lack of obedience and repenting in the same way these people are doing the same thing exactly. uh, but it's just like closer to home because they're claiming to be a part of like God's main vine or stump if you want to call it that yeah you're exactly right exactly right one of the things you said uh, takes me all the way back to the garden and the fact that yeah they're acting less than human that is the story of the bible when we elevate our own will above God's will, we are acting, uh, Rabbi Foreman would call it, like a beast. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tim Mackey calls it subhuman, mm-hmm. right? All of that. It's, that is the story of your Bible, and you're seeing it just really emphasized, displayed before your eyes right here. So yeah, it's, it's sickening. And mm-hmm. it's also important that we recognize this is us. We hmm. can be just as awful when we need yeah. to we need to be awake, be careful, yeah. you know. Anything else in there, Samuel? I uh, just real quick just wanted to point it out 
Jesus getting pummeled right now, and I mean, we're going to see more of that as the text goes on, but let's not forget, he still has, I mean, I, I know probably reading in a little bit, but the text hasn't said that anything is not contrary to this, but he still has the fullness of the Spirit, and he still oh, has yeah. his own, he still has his own will. So yeah. he is exerting an incredible amount of self-control right now to allow these things to be happening to him when it is very well within his power to snap his finger and you know receive the divine help he would need to get his enemies off of him so i just wanted us to keep that in our front forefront of our mind that he he's choosing this within his own humanity um it's not like a done deal so to speak he's it's I don't know. Yeah. Well, for him, it kind of is. He had his moment in the garden. Right. And then it's it's like he's come to that place where he's going, okay, this is what we're doing then. And his his face is set. And yeah, you're right. This that is good to keep that in our mind. He is continually being obedient through all of this. It's 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 amazing. All right. Well, let's see what else happens. Matthew chapter 26, verses 69 and 70, Mark chapter 14, verses 66 through 68, and Luke chapter 22, verses 56 and 57. I'm going to read from Mark. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. I chose to read this one because it's probably confusing people a little bit. Yeah, wasn't that only the second crow or the second (laughs) denial? (laughs) Yeah, and here's the weird part. In John, we've already had one denial, but in the synoptics, this is only the first. So this is where they would actually begin to coincide. But his story had Annas and, you know, all. It, it, it gets very confusing. And I probably should say it again. Remember, I'm taking Luke, and I've kind of messed up the order a little bit. So I'm trying to line them up so that they match up. But, yeah, Mark, well, let, let's do this. First, uh, let's get the picture. Peter's still out in the courtyard. And, and it's difficult to say how much of Jesus' trial, if we can call it that, that he could actually see and hear. But then this servant girl, she looks closely at him and declares that, hey, this, this guy was also with Jesus, right? But Peter denies it. He said, I don't know what you mean. In fact, I don't even understand what you mean. <laughs> I do not know him. <laughs> Peter is denying it. So, now we spoke of Jesus. Uh, uh, sorry, we spoke of Peter denying Jesus earlier in John's Gospel. So let's get back to that. It's like the Synoptic Gospels are catching up, and now now everybody is at one denial, if we could say it that way. So in the next section, they're all going to be in sync, and eventually we'll all get to three denials. And that's important because I think most of us in our mind, what we remember is he's going to deny three times before the rooster crows. But I just read, this was the first denial in Mark, and the rooster crowed. What's going on? Well, Mark says that Peter went out to the entrance gateway and heard a rooster. 
Mark is the only account that has a rooster crowing twice. And most of us, I don't know, we kind of forget that. There's a discrepancy in the Gospels. And so this is Mark kind of finishing out his story. So however you look at it, this is crow number one for Mark. And here's something important, though. Who was Mark in relation to Peter? Uh, (laughs) That turned out to be a good question. Yeah, (laughs) Mark was Peter's disciple. Hmm. So Mark was hearing all of these stories from Peter himself. This is the closest that we'll ever get to a gospel of Peter. It's Mark. And so when Mark says that the rooster crowed twice or something like that, that's very interesting because Peter is the main part of the story here. You might think that that actually carries some weight, but whatever. The other gospels say he had to deny three times and the rooster crowed once, whatever. I'm just saying this gospel content, it has its origin in Peter's storytelling, and so maybe we should give it more weight or I don't know, but it's something. But anyway, that's that little bit of the story. We're going to keep going. Sammy, you got anything before we do? Yeah, I guess I'm trying to figure out how would we we just saw last week where John was the one that was recognizable and like made it even possible for Peter to come into this space with this trial that's happening and then the the text says that one of the servants of the high priest came and it's almost like she recognizes Peter, but how is that possible? I I don't know. I'm just confused by that. Well, uh, we're going to see more as we continue the story. That will help a little bit. Uh, but also, we don't we don't really know who went where and who saw what. I mean, it, it describes her. What is it again? A servant girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the high priest. Yeah. When would she ever be in the temple or out and around and see him? I have no idea. But maybe it kind of relates to John's telling of the story, where John and Peter both kind of show up, and there's a servant girl watching the gate, and so she's like, oh, you must be one of them also, or, you know, whatever. Maybe it's his dress, maybe it's, I don't know. We don't know, but it's a good question. Yeah, it could have been his disposition, too, because we kind of have treated Peter all along in our walking through the Gospels as kind of the... Oh, what's the yeah like the the most aggressive or yeah what what's that hebrew word if you've got uh chutzpah he's got the chutzpah. most chutzpah uh, <laughs> yeah maybe. Of, of, of the 12 so maybe that stands out among a crowd of you know one rabbi and 12 disciples yeah maybe yeah we don't really know at, at this point again we'll see a little bit more but yeah but he denies it he, he does not want to be associated. And again, it's kind of funny because from John's telling, we have this idea that, but, but John, the disciple, is in there. So him, even if he admits that he is one of Jesus' disciples, we don't know what that means. Does that mean that, oh, he's going to get in trouble? He's going to be subject to death also? Or are they going to kick him out of the courtyard? Or, right? We, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Peter doesn't know, but he's denying it. So, all right, well, let's see what happens next. Uh, This is Matthew chapter 26, verses 71, 72. Mark chapter 14, verses 69 and 70, at least part of 70. 
Luke chapter 22, verse 58, and John chapter 18, verse 25. So we're kind of going to bring them all together here, even though Luke is still a little out of order. I'm going to go ahead and read from Matthew. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. So, (laughs) poor Peter. Do you remember when he said, I'll never deny you? (laughs) Mm -hmm. He's, oh, I can't even imagine what's going on in his head right now. But anyway, Peter... And again, if I had read all of the different versions, he's either at the entrance or maybe he's still by the fire or maybe he's moved to some unspecified place. We don't know. There's a lot of discrepancy. Wherever he is, he gets singled out again. You're one of them, one of his disciples. (laughs) And Peter denies it. Matthew even says that he denies it with an oath. He's swearing to it. And I don't mean, you know, using profanity. He's he's swearing. I swear. I do not know. I swear by the temple or, you know, something like that. He may, at this point, I mean, he might even be calling a curse down on himself if he is lying. I mean, he is going to the extremes to say, I do not know the man. This is a really, really, really bad moment for Peter. Mm. It's not over yet, but Samuel, comments, questions? I have something, but I'm going to wait until the next section because I feel like that's a better place to talk about it. Okay. All right. Well, let's see what we got here. Let's go on. Matthew chapter 26, verses 73 to 75. Mark chapter 14, verses 70 to 72. Luke chapter 22, verses 59 to 62. And John chapter 18, verse 26 and 27. I'm going to read from Luke this time, but I'm also going to grab a little bit from John. So Luke says this, And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now, the only reason I want to read from John is because it has more drama, right? He starts it this way. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? (laughs) So, hey, you cut off my cousin's ear. (laughs) Right. So Peter is just getting it from every side, every side. Uh, I'm going to say it again. Luke is a little bit out of order. But think about this. More time is passing. Now, we don't know what's happening with Jesus during all this. It's likely that we're to expect 
you know, whatever Jesus's timeline is and Peter's timeline is, their two stories, well, they're they're actually running in parallel. So it's not like all these things happen to Jesus, then all these things happen to Peter. It's probably kind of inter, interspersed in there, right? They're running together. So we're, we're probably getting to that point in Jesus's story where he's actually been, you know, pronounced guilty and they're beating on him and stuff like that. And we don't know that because of the way it's presented, but that's probably more likely what's going on. Anyway, after a while, says about an hour, some bystanders or a relative of the man whose ear Peter cut off or whatever, they start calling him out again. You were with him. Come on, dude. Even your Galilean accent gives you away. And I mean, at this moment, it appears he's just, he's totally caught in every way. And and just to say it, apparently, there was something quite distinct about the Galilean accent. And I read, (laughs) this is kind of funny. I was reading, uh, I don't know, I think this, uh, maybe it was in like a, the, Talmud or something. I can't remember where I got it. But they were trying to demonstrate just how difficult the Galilean accent was to understand. And it presented it this way. A woman said, come, my friend, I will give you some fat to eat. But what others understood them to say was, come, my cast off, may a lioness eat you. (laughs) That is awesome. Yeah. So apparently this Galilean accent was quite distinct. And so when they say, come on, dude, you're from Galilee, your accent gives you away, whatever. I mean, he is caught, caught, caught. And then what does he do in that same accent? He denies it. (laughs) And so you and I saw that, Paul, when we were in Israel that like, yes, I mean, I know it would have been different in the time of Jesus and not 2000 years later, but generally like one the the further north you move in the country of israel the more rural it gets so yeah in some well, ways it's like the people's accent here in lexington versus greensburg yeah we ate in a Druze restaurant and she was speaking hebrew but our hebrew guide was having all sorts of trouble understanding mm-hmm. what she was talking about right yep so yeah same thing but anyway peter doubles down Matthew and Mark, they tell us plainly, he was swearing, again, not profanity, like swearing by the temple or whatever. He was swearing and invoking a curse on himself. So my little thing earlier where I was just kind of guessing maybe he was doing that. Well, here they tell us he totally was invoking a curse. on. It's kind of pitiful. It's kind of childlike of Peter, but he won't give in. So Luke He adds a crazy detail. He's the only one that tells us this. At that moment, Jesus and Peter, their eyes catch. Can you even imagine how horrible for Peter that moment must have been? Maybe for Jesus too. I mean, he he predicted it. He knew it was coming. But to see it worked out, my man Peter, denying me three times. And Peter, oh, I, I can't believe I just did this. You know, he knew that Jesus knew that he had denied him. And Peter remembers how Jesus had told him that he would three times before the rooster coast. He was caught. He was exposed. And you got to think he is broken in this moment. And he goes away. He weeps. 
weeps bitterly. All four Gospels capture Peter's failure. That sucks <laughs> to be him. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's rough. But, and this is important, they had to include it because it was a defining moment in Peter's life. And yet, this moment does not define Peter. His story isn't over. And that, what a lesson in that, right, Samuel? Mm-hmm. We can do things. We can do things that seem so big, so whatever, and like defining moments in our life. But we have to remember those moments don't have to define us. It's not the end of our story. We mm -hmm. can go on. And so Peter is such a great example of that. Sad for him that he has to be in the Gospels in this way, and yet it's so, so awesome for us that we have this to look to as we try to walk our way through this life. Now, I don't know if anybody remembers this, but we've talked about this whole rooster thing before. And we talked about how, you know what? Chickens, roosters, whatever, they're not even allowed in Jerusalem. Did we say why? Uh, just because they're dirty, smelly, okay, uh, etc. Uh, we didn't not have because like, they're unclean, right? Uh, no, I, no, that didn't have anything to do with it. They're okay. noisy, dirty, smelly, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They just didn't gotcha. want them around. Now, it could have been that there was just a stray rooster that had gotten its way into Jerusalem. In a sense, that kind of makes it even more amazing that Jesus could predict that, <laughs> right? So it could have been that. Or it could be that they were referring to the temple crier announcing the first signs of daylight. This was, uh, it, it was idiomatic in Jesus's day. They would say that this, te this temple crier was a rooster crowing. Hmm. Jews actually referred to this as the rooster's call. And so it could be that that's what they were talking about, that Jesus would have denied him three times, and this is the moment, not only when the rooster calls, but this is the moment when day appears, daybreak happens. Mm. Now, that kind of messes up Mark's story, and that's, that's kind of hard to swallow, because in theory, he got his stuff straight from Peter, so that makes all of this difficult, but you just got to put all of this out there, get it on the table, and then you just kind of, you kind of have to hold it all together loosely and figure out what you think's happened in the story. But anyway, that's that bit. Samuel, got anything? Yeah. Um, and this first part is all speculative. We're just mid-roshing this together. But um, there, there's no way of knowing whether this foreknowledge of that Jesus had concerning Peter's denial was, you let's just say, divinely orchestrated by God to preserve the life of Peter so that he could help establish, you know, the body, the assembly of God after Jesus's ministry ends and he returns back to the heavenly realm. But um, even in that, like, I'm not, not, I'm not trying to question that Jesus's love for Peter would have changed at all. But I just wonder, you know, with Jesus being human and it, like experiencing the same human emotions that we do, that moment of Jesus turning around and looking at Peter, if that's like a form of like, 
man, I'm really like, I'm disappointed that, you know, that you, that this is where you ended up. Like, it's like a natural, like, I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with being in a relationship with someone, a friendship or brotherhood and your friend letting you down. And it's natural to feel disappointed in that. So I just wonder if that is at play here in that, that interaction. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a really good question because I agree with you in his humanity. That is totally, totally possible. It is also possible that maybe in this moment, Peter, you know, Jesus knows he is so, so broken, so exposed, just knowing what it is he has done, Peter, knowing what he's done. It could also be that Jesus's look was an attempt to say, I get it. I understand. I have lived as a human and it's okay. You're broken right now, but guess what? I'm still here. Mm-hmm. I'm still with you. You know, I mean, do, do we know that anything is true or right? Or No, we don't know what, what's going on in their head. But I, I even if, right, I'm, I'm just trying to paint, you, you did one side of the spectrum, I painted the other side of the spectrum, could have been either of those or anything in between, who knows, whatever. But I definitely agree with you that no matter what look it was that Jesus gave him, Jesus was feeling the disappointment. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was human. And and I agree with that a hundred percent. I I I I would be shocked if he didn't feel it. Right. So yeah, right. I, I think that's... Because the movies, you know, that pop culture have made concerning these events always paint Jesus at at this point in the story is just like universally stoic and like right. almost expressing no emotion whatsoever. But he didn't stop being human once he set his face towards Jerusalem and you know, knew that his end was coming, like he would have continued to experience the full range of human emotion until the end. Yeah. And that again is what makes him so awesome as a mediator between God and man, because he knows what it is to be God. He knows what it is to be human. And he didn't experience his humanity as if, you know, protected by some God bubble. He experienced the fullness of, of humanity. He knows. And so, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's good. And I think it's the, an awesome thing for us to do is to, to let the, you know, like the movie in our head, let it have, you know, some different scenarios. Well, what if Jesus responded this way? Or, oh, what if he looked at him that way? Or, you know, I think that's good. Let your mind really meditate on the potential story and, and all of the things that could be happening. I, I just think it makes your experience of the scriptures richer. Mm. So it's good. Definitely. Um, the other thing I had, I I wonder if this, like when you said, this is a defining moment in Peter's life that all four gospel accounts include. I wonder <laughs> if there if there is some kind of intentional contrasting, especially with I've got gematria on my mind now with numbering and the symbolism, the power of three. So mm. we talked about earlier that you know we we see Jesus in two different scenarios at the beginning and end of his ministry, where in some ways he's tested three times. Right. You know, one account in the wilderness by the Satan, and then the second time by his own will, so to speak, in the garden. And yeah. that that is an example of. God slash Jesus doing what we 
in our brokenness could not do. And Peter is like the 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 opposite end of the spectrum, showcasing like our our condition now, like uh, with sin and death not being conquered yet. Um, right. I just wonder if there's just if the writers had those things in mind to say like Peter, like as unfortunate as his failure is, we're going to use that to showcase how great Jesus's accomplishment was of pursuing righteousness perfectly oh, uh, yeah. in, in ways that we could not. Yeah, that's such a great connection. And, you know, spoiler alert, we know that this three times for Peter is going to come up later in the story. Uh, we'll talk about it when we get there, how it connects back to this. But yeah, I think I think that's a cool connection, Samuel. The threes, the successful ones and the failing ones. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, it's good. Anything else? That's it for now. All right. Let's see what we got. This is a, it's kind of a short bit, uh, but Matthew chapter 27, verses one and two, and Mark chapter 15, verse one. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read Matthew. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Okay. Kind of some weird stuff in here. So let's note some things. Uh, We just talked about the rooster crowing and how that could be the pronunciation of daylight or whatever. Notice that these start with, oh, and now it's morning. So that's a thing. Daylight has finally come. And then it appears that they gather the council again. And Mark, he's very explicit. He says that it is the whole council. Now, because of some of the things that we talked about before, the fact that they're now trying to gather them again and that it is daylight and all of that, it could be, it could be that this time we maybe should take it more literally. Maybe they really did now gather everyone together. But even if that is true, and and we don't know because of the way the text has worked out, but even if it is true, at this point, the numbers are against Jesus. And even though it seemed kind of official before, now we have an official, official decision. They are going to put him to death. So even if we did have people in attendance now who were on his side, it didn't matter. We don't get any any uh, detail if there was any sort of arguing or anything at all. All we know is they they agreed, they voted, whatever they did, they put him to death or agreed to do it. So again, though, we have to point out they can't actually carry out that sentence. They have to get Rome to do it. And so now we see them beginning down that path. They bind him and they deliver him over to Pilate. They must get him to carry it out. And considering the situation we're in, we know that this is, I mean, Passover is here. I mean, they're going to do that in the afternoon, whatever. They've got to get him to carry it out quickly. So now we begin the setup for that. Anything, Samuel? Mm -hmm. Yeah, just real quick. Contextually, we probably have talked about it in a previous episode, but I just can't remember it. And maybe some of our listeners trying to remember as well but is the reason why they can't put someone they can't carry out this sentence and they must have Rome to do it 
is is that that's not dic- being dictated by the Torah as much as it is like Jerusalem proper is being occupied by Rome and Rome in their quest for power and ruling over people, you know, uh, deemed it that, you know, you all as a people who are residing in this land that we're controlling, you don't even get a say into who you get to put to death or not. Like, we have to be the ones that actually do that. Is is it the second one? Yeah, that- yeah. What actually is going on is in Rome, Israel, the Jews, have been actually given a very special and, and awesome pass for their religion. The Jews are able to continue being, what do you want to call it, Jewish, <laughs> to, to have their temple, to, to, to worship their God, their way, keep all of their traditions. The fact that they are able to do that is really awesome and special. Rome actually, what's, what's a word? They, they had respect for the Jewish religion. Been around a long time, etc., etc. So that was super awesome. But Rome was still in charge. And though they allowed the Jews to continue holding court, they could do a lot of things, right? They could make a lot of decisions that, that had to do with everyday life. They could do that. But when it came to the big stuff, and especially like a capital case, death penalty, whatever, Rome was like, uh, no, you guys, you, you don't get to make those decisions. We're in charge. So when things like that come up, you have to bring them to us. Had gotcha. nothing to do with Torah. It, they used Torah to come to their decision, but in terms of the actual carrying out of the punishment, they were forced by Rome to bring that to them. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha super helpful all right so let's see uh now we're looking at matthew chapter 27 this is kind of long verses 3 through 10 this actually may be where we end today that'll be good because it's a good stopping point so here we go then when judas his betrayer saw that jesus was condemned he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Okay. (laughs) Somehow, some way, Judas 
had witnessed all of this or heard about the verdict or something. We don't know where Judas was in all of this. Because he was the betrayer, was he just like standing around, you know, in the midst, witnessing it all? Maybe. But whatever, once he realized that Jesus was condemned to death, he changed his mind. Okay, thanks for nothing, (laughs) right? Isn't that crazy? He saw that he was condemned to death and he changed his mind. Now, first, let me say this. This is the epitome of foolishness. Making decisions and acting without considering the consequences. Did he really think that it was going to turn out differently? Or or, did he think that he was actually forcing revolution, forcing Jesus's hand, that he would actually be the king that he was supposed to be, something like that? Who knows? Only after being faced with the true consequences, if you're being foolish, only then do you wish to take it back. I wish I'd never done this. I wish I'd never said that. Whatever. This is foolishness. You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. You can't unring the bell. For what it's worth, he gives the money back. Now, whatever you may think of it, whatever you may think of Judas, I think that this is a sincere moment of repentance. Agreed. He knew that he had, for all practical purposes, killed an innocent. He had sinned, and he was truly sorry. Of course, he couldn't do anything about it. And, of course, no one cared. This was a defining moment for him, and it defined him. (laughs) Unlike Peter, this was bad. He threw the money into the temple, and then he went off to hang himself. It's a sad, sad end. Now, just for a little clarity, kind of a side note, if we were to zip ahead and read in Acts chapter 1, verse 18, kind of tells a different story. Like there was a different ending. Basically, Judas kind of, he falls down and like he literally just bursts open. <laughs> His insides fall out or whatever. What? <laughs> uh, yeah. I have no good explanation for the discrepancy. And honestly, there aren't even any that are good enough to repeat Uh, Many have tried to come up with some sort of explanation for this, but, you know, whatever. Maybe, like, he tried to hang himself with the rope broke and he fell far down and that's what caused him to split open, or uh, I don't know. They're just, they're they're stretching, really stretching. But, and I can't, I'm not even going to try to explain it. The point is, Judas had a bad end. Let's go with that. Now, we're told that this money couldn't be put into the treasury. And it was really difficult. I searched around trying to find anybody who could relate this back to a specific verse. I'm just going to say the closest, we're not even going to bother reading it, maybe Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 18. You can look at that if you want. But I, I, I don't know. They call it blood money. Okay, obviously, we, we could understand how just from the name that that would be bad. But... I I just couldn't find anything specific. But 
let's take them at their word. They couldn't put it in the treasury. So what did they do instead? They bought a field to use as a burial place for strangers. Now, just stop right there for a second. That was kind of an awesome, cool thing to do with the money. I mean, forget the whole rest of the story. Just say, hey, we've got some extra money. We can't use it because of this. What do we do? Well, let's buy a burial place for strangers. That was actually a good thing to do, right? But doesn't matter. The story's bad, and we kind of overlook that. I understand it. Another thing, Samuel, it's called a potter's field. Now, there's this. I mean, it's, it's kind of confusing. What are we even talking about? Some say that it's because, well, this, this field, it was filled with red clay soil, something that potters would be really interested in. And so that's where they would go get their clay for doing pottery. Okay, maybe. Some say it's because potters were often very poor in in the culture. I don't even know if that's true. I mean, they're saying that it's true, whatever. So it's a potter's field because that's where, you know, in theory, strangers are poor and don't have any family, whatever. So they go, I don't know, maybe. Some say it wasn't even talking about a potter like we think of it with, you know, clay and hardening and, you know, pots and whatever. But instead, that potter was a slang for vagrants. And so burial place for strangers, a potter's field. Okay, maybe. I I don't know. I'm not going to solve this for you today. (laughs) I'm just letting you know the fact that they called it a potter's field is in itself, a simple little thing like that is filled with some, some mystery, some confusion. So there's that. And then, this is the hard part, Samuel, all of this, Matthew tells us that all of this was to fulfill a prophecy of one of the prophets. Now, I'm going to say the question is, which one? And if you were listening, you're probably sitting around going, well, it seems like it ought to be Jeremiah since the text explicitly says Jeremiah, (laughs) right? (laughs) The problem is, This text isn't in Jeremiah. It's not in the Masoretic text. It's not in the Septuagint. It's just not there. And so the quotation, at least from what I can tell, it seems to be closely related to something from Zechariah. It's chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. But even that, it's it's not like a perfect match or anything. So there is no exact match in Jeremiah, Jeremiah, but there are some popular guesses. Some people have looked at Jeremiah 18, verses 2 to 6, and they sort of add that together with Jeremiah 32, verses 6 to 15. There's a lot of talk about potters and fields, stuff like that, so, so that's where they get that. Another one, uh, Jeremiah 19, verses 1 through 13, that often gets cited uh, in conjunction with the verses that I spoke about from Zechariah 11. So that's kind of an interesting one. They're all interesting in their own way, but seriously, we are just left having to accept that this quote is from something somewhere we just no longer have. Now, maybe it was something else that was, in fact, attributed to Jeremiah. You know, maybe it it, it only existed as like a midrash or this or that or whatever, but it was attributed to Jeremiah. Maybe. Maybe. We don't, the thing is, we don't know. Matthew seems certain and clear that it was from Jeremiah, but we have no connecting point for that. So anyway, 
that's kind of the the end of the story for here. We're going to switch scenes or topics or whatever as we go. So I think this is a good place to stop it, Samuel. Even though in Okie Dokie most podcast standards, we are early or short. <laughs> Maybe you can fix it with enough questions. Oh, I don't don't you worry. I'm cooking as we speak. <laughs> um, Double yoker. Yeah. Um, I wanted to point out that earlier with Judas, like <clears throat> all the way back during the the last Seder with Jesus and his disciples, that the text said that the Satan entered him. And yeah. we uh, we don't know explicitly how that dynamic played out in terms of affecting Judas's decisions and all the things that went into the him bringing that group of people to the garden to get him arrested right. but if if we are treating this expression of Judas in this section as a true moment of repentance to me even though the gospels never said explicitly that the satan left him it's hard for me to imagine that the satan still being at play in this moment of repentance for him so i don't know it it, kind of gives me some imagery that like i'm sure he had his own will and decision that he fell prey to that led to the betrayal but there could have also been you know there's a real spiritual enemy in this story and it's the spiritual enemy is wanting to win it's wanting to thwart god and it may have used judas as a a tool to try to to do that and so I, I i don't know it's just that came up while you were talking about all that and i just wanted to make sure that you know we mentioned it because i think that that should be a thing that we consider concerning the the story of judas yeah yeah you know it's it's really easy and happens all the time in church people talk about judas and man they just bust his chops okay to some degree, totally understandably so. We get that. But we don't even know. I mean, think of, just think about this. When he kills himself, right? You could look at that and you can go, he's a coward. And you know what? You could be right. But could it also be, and I'm not saying he's correct, but could it be that in his mind he's going, I'm the one who deserves to die, not him? Mm-hmm. He is going to die, and I'm going to be left living. That is unjust. That is not honorable. The honorable thing for me to do is to take my own life, you know, or something Mm. like that. Again, I don't know that he thought that. I don't know if that would be correct to think that. I'm not saying anything like that. We don't know what was going on in his head, but I love, I'm, I'm so glad you remembered that and brought that up. This seems like, if there were going to be a moment when Satan left him, this would have been it. So that's really good. Yeah. And in the same way that Peter's denial of Jesus was his defining moment in his life, this betrayal that Judas carried out was his defining moment in his life. And I would argue that Judas had the same choice in terms of how to respond and whether to believe that that was the end of his story or not. And you get, again, here's a contrasting and a parallel. Peter 
was fortunate enough to not give up and not let that be the end of his story. And unfortunately, yeah. Judas did, did, didn't. did So yeah. um, I don't know. It's just, once again, the Bible is way more complex and complicated than people give it credit for. Yeah. Yeah, that's good imagery. That is good. The contrasting Peter and Judas and their response to their defining moments. Very good stuff. Very good stuff. Anything else? Man, I cooked it up and we're still under an hour. We, yeah. I, I, fa- <laughs> I, I failed. No, it's we're not that far under. <laughs> so, yeah, let's, uh, you know what? Let's just be done. We'll pick it up next time. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.